0: It's time to get inside the Giants Huddle. Let's go back to your huddle. On Giants.com. Tempo, tempo, tempo. And the Giants Mobile. Go, 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 go. Part go. Of the Giants Podcast Network. Yeah. Welcome to the newest edition of the Giants Huddle Podcast. John Schmoke with you. Today we're joined by former Giant Matthias Kiwanuka, who is doing some great stuff post-career. We'll talk about that. And of course, some of the stuff he did while he was a member of the Giants as well. But first, a reminder, you can find the Giants Huddle Podcast on the Giants Podcast Network, which you can find at the Giants mobile app at giants.com slash podcast and on all your favorite podcast platforms. Now we're joined by our guest, You know him as Matthias Kiwanuka. We used to call him Kiwi up here. He's down in Florida now enjoying his retirement. Kiwi, you got Schmelk up here in your old stomping grounds in central northern New Jersey. How's life, man? How you doing? Life is
1: good. Life is good. This is around the time of year that I do miss being in New York after the snow starts to melt and people start coming out of hibernation. And then it gets, it gets hot down here. So everybody's, you trade the winters for the summers down here, but um, no, I do miss it. I'm good, though. Life is good. Uh, no complaints here. Just been hanging out down here in Fort Lauderdale.
0: Yeah, we've had 70 degrees for a good week or so here. Guys are starting to roll in for OTAs. How much do you miss the offseason training, though? I'm guessing that probably not as much. <laughs>
1: you know, you'd be surprised. Like you, you, The farther you get away from the game – <clears throat> the less you think about the pain and, and all that kind of stuff. And you just, you do think about like those first couple days when you're walking back in and you're seeing all the guys and catching up, that stuff is always fun. You know, like it's, it's always, um, it was always difficult to get, you know, back into top shape. But by the time you get done with OTAs, you're feeling good. You're ready to go. You know, you got another break coming before minicamp. And uh, so, yeah, I, I do miss it, miss being around there. I mean, I've played for the Giants my entire career. So that's all I know. And I know um, how good of an organization it is.
0: Well, we certainly miss you up here, uh, and, and we'll talk a lot about your time with the Giants. But Kiwi, first, let's talk about what you're doing now. You've got invested and involved in Smile Train. Talk about why that's important to you and what it is you're doing and what the organization does to help people.
1: So why it's important to me is, you know, when I was still playing, I had a lot of, you know, uh, philanthropic Aspirations or Aspirations, whatever you want to call it. And, um, you know, so I we went back to Uganda, we built a well, and we added on a, um, a school building to the school in, in Conga, where my mom is from. And, you know, after you retire, you realize that you can't do it all alone. You know, you can't change the world by yourself, you're going to need some help. So I linked up with a couple of organizations. First, All Star Smiles down here and then the Water Trust up in New York. And then recently I was invited to join the board of the Smile Train and it's by far the biggest, most powerful organization um, that I've been a part of. And you know I'm just very proud to be a part, very humbled and, and very um, appreciative of the opportunity, you know, to go back, you know, not just to Uganda, but to go to every country pretty much. I mean, they're in 70 different countries or we're we're in 70 different countries. Over 1.5 million clefts have been fixed um, due to the Smile Train's activity. And, um, you know, it just continues to grow.
0: I believe the Tisch family is, is involved in a lot of that too, right? Helping with the cleft issues there. Uh, just talk about how Smile Train helps that and, you know, why what they do is so important with some of those cleft surgeries to, to fix some of those problems they have. Um, from where you're from in Africa and how they're really helping the people down there.
1: So one of the unique things about it is that cleft palates have been mostly eradicated in the United States, you know, because when it happens, it's fixed, you know, really early on and a lot of people walk around and you'd have no idea that that was something that they were born with. Unfortunately, the rest of the world just doesn't have the capability, just doesn't have the technology or the resources to do so. So there are a lot of kids who are struggling with it, you know, with something that, you know, they shouldn't be, in my opinion. What makes Smile Train unique is that we don't just go into a country, set up shop, take pictures and then leave. We actually go into the community and teach those doctors and give them support so that they can continue treating after we've left. That was the part that intrigued me the most. You're not just this isn't just a photo op opportunity. No, You're going in and you're going to be able to revisit these these locations and see the progress going forward, so it just continues to grow <clears throat> and to grow um, over the course of years. And you know, the the work that they had already done uh, was amazing. Uh, they gave me an opportunity to to go specifically back to Uganda, and we're still we're still in the in the process of, of planning that trip. We were hoping to go in June, but with COVID restrictions and all that, we we're you know we pushed it back. Hopefully by December, um, that's the next target date. Hopefully by December, we'll be in Uganda. So um just being able to to help people with, the, with it's it's a common issue but it's just not um as uh, as serious it's just not as as difficult to deal with in the you know first world
0: i know your personal story and a lot of the fans out there might not why do you feel such a connection to uganda based on your family history
1: so the story is my grandfather was the first prime minister my my father's father was the first prime minister and um, my grandfather on my mother's side was a humble teacher in the village. He was actually one of the men who started teaching young women at a time when it was still punishable by law. But he thought it was important enough. And he thought that his children specifically, are 16 of them, keep in mind. he thought that his children specifically deserved an opportunity to go to school, men and women, boys and girls. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> starting with that and knowing that I have literally hundreds of cousins all over the world, and you know, me having a platform and the resources to do so, it was just kind of like a no-brainer. You know, I'm one generation removed from being born in the village and having dealt with the same issues that they are, so the way I say it is, you know, I'm no more physically gifted or any more talented. But by the grace of God, I was born in Indianapolis. I got recruited to go to Boston College, and then I played for the New York Giants. And it's a it's an easy lead in in a conversation when you when you show up with a Super Bowl ring or a couple Super Bowl rings to sit and and have a conversation. So I just always felt like you know there's there's something more to um, to my success than just playing football and, and moving on with my life. I mean, retired life is great. Don't get me wrong, but it can drive you crazy if you don't find a cause to get behind.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. And and, and we'll talk a little bit more about your retirement and your causes uh, at the end of the interview, Kiwi, but you perfect segue. You got drafted by the giants in 2006, a first round pick. They actually traded back and it's a little continuity here. The giants, this is the first time they've traded back this year since they picked you back in 2006. What do you remember? about that night did you think the Giants were going to pick you what was it like getting the phone call how draft night go for you not at
1: all I I just knew that they weren't going to pick me to be honest with you I met with them maybe as the short of any of the teams that were interested at the combine I knew they had OC they had tuck they had straight hand um there were there was just a lot of guys on that team already so when it came time to um, to get that but here's a funny story so I'm sitting in the living room with all my family around the first picks back then it took hours to get from one to 32 you know so we're sitting there and uh miami's on the clock and i get a call from a miami number i pick it up and i'm thinking okay this is it turns out it was one of my friends from college who just happened to be <laughs> calling from a miami number so there was it was a lot of emotions and then what I do remember is um, picking up the phone when the Giants were on the clock. Right before the Giants got on the clock, I, I got a phone call, I picked up the phone, and they said, hey, we're going to pick you with the next pick. Here, talk to Coach Coughlin. And uh, I was I was so excited. I think I hung up on Coughlin. <laughs> 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 and I, I had to, uh, he had to call me back the second time. But I just remember being in my living room uh, with my entire family and some friends and And just feeling like, you know, it was a combination of all the hard work that I put into high school and college. I knew I had a lot of work to do. I knew I had a lot ahead of me. I didn't know how much. But I just felt really, really proud and and happy that, you know, all that all that work that I put in, you know, I didn't my one of my points of pride is. From my red shirt freshman year until I went to the play ball American weekend as a senior, I didn't miss one practice. I didn't miss one lift. I didn't miss one thing on the sheet. Because, yeah, I remember I was 6'6, 195 when I got there. And I remember calling home and telling my mom, like, yo, these guys are 270 pounds they got like 10 percent body fat i messed up like i'm never gonna play here and she encouraged me and she said just just stick with it and so i got in the hip pocket of some of the veterans that were there and and um they just made space for me you know that was kind of kind of um how it worked in college and the same thing in the league you know you just keep working keep grinding as long as you sharpen your um your skill set and and keep working. People will take notice and you'll get the opportunities.
0: That's actually funny you mentioned that. The Giants drafted Ellison Smith in the fourth round this year. He has a similar story. He showed up in Northern Iowa. I think he was 195 pounds. He ended up <laughs> putting on 50, 55 pounds of muscle while he was there. Obviously, different competition level, but it's, it, it's amazing what you can do when you put the hard work in. And, and you mentioned it kind of, you know, getting in the hip pocket of the vets. That could not have been an easy room to walk into <laughs> in that Giants stadium. Um, Strahan, He's a lot of things, but I, you know, my guess is that he was not the easiest on the rookies in that room. And then you got OC and Tuck. What was it like walking in there and not just learning from those guys, but uh, dealing with those guys in a lot of way too?
1: I mean, I, I know with the stories and everything come out, you got to keep in mind I was a first round pick, so I walked in there with a, a boatload of confidence. But yeah, when you when you walk in, and you see Michael, St- great Michael Strahan, and you see all these other guys that that have been really successful in their careers. You know, it, it's, it's um, jaw dropping, to be honest with you. One, another funny story. So we it was like the first meeting we had back in the old building when we were down in the, in the basement and uh, everybody's sitting together. Brandon Jacobs, for some reason, didn't sit with the running backs. He used to sit with the D linemen. And I didn't recognize him at first, but I just saw this 6'5", 230, 60-pound guy. And as we're getting ready to leave, we go into the meeting rooms, and this guy takes a right when everybody else was taking a left. And he goes into the running back room, and I said, that's what an NFL running back is? (laughs) Like, I was, I was floored by that. I mean, it turns out he was probably the biggest at the time, but. Uh, but I, I didn't know that. I was like, I was like, whoo, you know, I got some I got some more weight to gain if that's what we're going to be hitting against. And um, but throughout my career, I mean, the guys, we had a really close locker room. We had a really close meeting room. Um, we all did tend to help each other out. And I couldn't have asked for a better group of guys. We're still in contact now. We still joke and laugh about things that happened back then. So um, I think everything worked out for me just the way that God intended.
0: We always talk about how, you know, veteran presence can help a young guy come along. Can you give some instances of of what those guys taught you and how they, you know, assisted you in becoming the player you eventually became?
1: The one of the biggest helps during my career, especially as I was making the transition from D lineman to linebacker. And one person I think never got enough credit was Antonio Pierce. I mean, he was way more than just a middle linebacker. He's a friend. He was a teacher. He was a guy. He was very confident in his skills. And I used to say, this guy, you could give him two seconds of a play to run and stop anywhere in the NFC East. And he could probably tell you what play they're running, which direction they're going and everything. Like he just had it, had it. And so... He was a guy that taught you, you know, you can go out, you can have fun and you can hang out. But he was always the first one back in the sauna. He was always in the weight room. He was always sitting there with his notebook out, ready to ask questions. And so, you know, he kind of he would help guide me along like, hey, do this. Don't do that. Go here. Don't do this. You know. And, you know, so guys like that who are just willing to help everybody, Corey Webster is another one. You know, Corey Webster would have meetings at his house down in his basement and he would teach guys how to watch film. I'm not even talking about like teaching them what the play is. He was just teaching them how to watch. Film. He bought one of the, the big computers that, that they had at the Giants at the time and downloaded all the practice and wow. All- onto it and he would say come over you know just just grab grab some food grab some drinks and we're just going to sit here and we're just i'm going to teach you guys how to watch film. i don't think he explained it as teaching you how to watch film i think he just said yo come over but at that time i remember being like looking back on i remember being like this is a a that was a really valuable experience and so it wasn't just in that d-line meeting room obviously You know, the OCU manure is like he taught me how to back tip the ball, which means keep one piece of your eye on the very back tip of the ball and then trust yourself you know, he was, he was very big on that. You know, you got to trust yourself. You got to be able to not be afraid to make mistakes. You know, you're going to jump off sides, but if you get three sacks in the game, no one's going to care about you jumping off sides. We all know O.C. was good for a couple of those every week.
0: Don't tell Coughlin that, man. You think Coughlin (laughs) wants to know about penalties? Come on. He'd be losing his mind. I learned, I learned, I learned
1: from Coughlin that you have to wear high socks during practice. That's, no, I'm joking. Coughlin was great. I'll never never say anything bad about him. He's one of the guys that I respect the most in terms of leadership and, and what it takes to lead a group of men. You got to remember, these are big men with big egos and big pockets. It's not easy to to command respect in a room like that. But when you get up there every day, day in and day out, and your message is consistent, and you hold everybody accountable, I don't care if you're Michael Strahan pulling in five minutes late, or if you're, you know, the, the, the second team guy, you know, pulling in 10 minutes late, the punishment is the same. You guys are treated the same. And I think That had a lot to do with our success. You know, I I heard stories from other teams around the league and, you know, guys would show up halfway through practice or halfway through meetings. I was like, man, that would never fly in New York. Not one time would a guy. First of all, you show up that late, you're not practicing, you might not play. Um, But it was it was just uh, there was just always a level of of confidence, accountability and a teaching mentality that permeated the entire room.
0: Yeah, Tom also taught you high socks at practice, and no white socks on the road either. Remember, you can't, have, <laughs> you can't have the white socks on the road. Big, big, big no-no.
1: You know, you know what I used to do though—the the, the trick around that one. I used to tell people, you put on the low socks, and then you just tape around the top, so he can't tell if you have <laughs> it or not. I did that. I did that for probably about six years, and and everybody's like, "Yo, Kimi, how do you get away with that?" I'm like, "Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Establish, <laughs> establish your own system." And he would would come to me a couple of times. He'd be like, do you have high socks under there? I'm like, what do you think?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Did you have like a wake up moment with Coughlin? Because it's funny, you're from Boston College. So I imagine you probably got some stories heading in as to Mm -hmm. what that was going to be like. But did you have that moment where, you know, maybe as a rookie where, where, where Tom found you something doing wrong and you showed up late and you felt the wrath a little bit? Oh yeah,
1: there was a, I think it might've been my rookie year. It was either my first or second year. We were doing some live drills with the offensive linemen. You remember Rich Siebert? Of course, Richie, of course. He was, yeah. was the first guy Richie, to start a
0: fight at training camp, that Richie side. Richie
1: was, from. he was a fiery guy and he loved it. And I remember we were doing a drill. It was a, a, a screen pass. It was live. It was a screen pass and I jumped to get my hands up and he chucked me out of the air. I mean, he knocked the wind out of me and everything. And as I was going down, I, you know, I, I had, a, I had a, um, a memory of what my coach in, in, high, in college had taught me. is like, if they kick you out of the air, just bring your foot up. You'll catch them right underneath their chin. And so, you know, it was just, it was instinct for me at that point. So I did it and a scuffle ensued. I mean, we, everybody was there. Snee was always kind of on both sides of the fence because he was a BC guy, I played with him, but he's also an offensive lineman over there. So I remember him pulling me off and like getting me away. And Coach Coffin comes up to me and he goes, did you kick him in the face? (laughs) And he's laughing, he's trying not to laugh and he just pulls me aside and he's like, you can't do that, son, and he walked away, and I was like, okay, there's, he, he's he got a little, you know, humanity underneath that tough exterior, because I saw him walk back to the sideline, he was cracking up laughing, he couldn't believe this rookie just came in, and is pulling this, this kind of stuff already, but, um, so that, that was pretty early on, and he did talk to me about it after practice, and Rich and I made up, and everything like that, but, um, you know, he just, he was, a, he's a fighter in his own right, you know, and he, he knew it was going to get heated, and he loved it.
0: What was the worst? Uh, I I hesitate to call it rookie hazing, but what was the uh, worst thing that Strahan did to you in that first year or two when you were in that room? Anything fun, jokes, practical jokes, you know, rookie chores, whatever Sticking you me. want to pull out of your bag. Sticking me with the bill
1: every time, you know, the first rounder comes in, oh, you're paying. You're paying for dinner. That's that's. <laughs> there's no questions asked. Nah, I don't, I don't think we did too much hazing. They didn't. They didn't haze me too badly. Um, probably taking all his practice reps. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: yeah, but that's because the 2007 he wasn't even there for most of camp, right?
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, he showed up like a couple days before. He went out there and he just played his way into shape, and he was confident that he was going to do it. So, um, yeah, now he he didn't he didn't get on us too bad. Another story about it, I do remember. You know, it was probably around that same year. And you know they used to have media come in in between. Um, you know when you're taking a shower and going to your second meetings, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I just remember he was going after somebody. He was giving it to them. They were giving it back. He was loud. He was boisterous. And we come back in. I think Tucker somebody asked him like, Yo, Stray, why do you why do you, why do you entertain that? Why do you go back and forth? And he had this big smile on his face, and he's like, Man, I don't care about that. And he's like, I'm setting this up for after I retire. And that stuck in my mind, like looking back on it, I'll never forget it. He was engaging. He was forceful. He went back and forth. He didn't care, but he had a plan back then to be doing what he's doing now. And I think like looking back on it, like that's um, that was that was true
0: genius right there. Oh, Always a step ahead, man. No question about it. You mentioned before with Antonio Pierce helping you go to linebacker. And I know you're not looking for sympathy, but I look, I'll be honest. I always felt bad for you, man. You getting <laughs> yo-yoed between defensive end and linebacker. Oh, you're going to be a linebacker. Oh, OC's hurt. Now you're going to be a defensive end again. Oh, now you're back to linebacker again. Do you like, does it, do you think back and get frustrated sometimes where like if they would have just stuck me somewhere and let me play one darn position, maybe things would, I would have been yeah. even better.
1: I, t- I tend not to look back and regret because you got to remember also, I broke my ankle that second year. Yep. I had a serious neck injury um, my fourth year. And I do believe that, you know, God puts you in the position you're supposed to be in. Now, would I have done it again? Absolutely not. I would have played from position and stuck with it, but, um, yeah, so I, I try not to, to go back and look back at what if or what could have happened, because God forbid, I mean, I could have ended up hurt or done something else. So um, I enjoyed it. I got to win two Super Bowls. I played with some amazing guys. And uh, but what I, I will say is there, there were some moments of frustration. And I remember saying to myself, no one person is supposed to be play a four technique against Flozo Adams and then cover Deshaun Jackson running across his face. Like, I was like, it, it, that's just bad coaching right there, okay? Like, you can't put one guy into all those positions. But I started, I played all um, six of the front seven positions during my career, and, you know, I, I I feel like that enabled me to stay around a little bit longer. I was also the right wing on punt my entire career. And so, I just felt like the more that I could contribute to the team, the the better off we would be. Uh, personally, yeah, it was a sacrifice, but there are so many guys out there whose names you don't know who also sacrificed. Guys who gave up millions of dollars to you know to play out of position. So uh, I wasn't the only one. I might just be one of the bigger names that you know.
0: Hey, Giant fans, limited Giant season tickets are on sale now for the 2021 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, presales, and more. You can lock in your seat starting at just 100 bucks. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information. Let's get vaccinated. Go to covid19.nj.gov slash vaccine to register. Hey, Giant fans, don't miss out on your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giant Games or world-class concerts in 2021 as a Giant Suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available or place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com suites for more information. 2007, uh, obviously the team, everyone remember they go win a Super Bowl. You unfortunately broke your leg on November 18th uh, mm. that year. And that's kind of when, and again, I'm not making the connection here, but then that, you know, you had the Viking game in there, which was kind of a disaster. I'm sure you remember that. And then the team gets into the playoffs and they start rolling. Uh, What was the, I guess, first the frustration level? What was it like from the outside looking in, kind of seeing all that come together?
1: It's difficult because you're, it's, you have a lot of conflicted emotions. I think I've started 10 games that year. So I was very much a part of the team and then, it was uh, Shockey and and myself and um, what was it D Ward? We all had the same injury, so it was it was really it's really difficult as a player not to be contributing in the big moments when it when it really counts, and that's why a lot of times when I talk about winning Super Bowls, I talk about the second one. So I had the first one early in my career where I was hurt, the second one later on in my career where you know I was playing sparingly. But in between there, I did have some great years. I had some great times. And so I think just being part of those teams um, that won are, are the bright spots. But, yeah, it's difficult. I'm still – I just had my sixth surgery on that ankle back last December. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> it's uh, – a. It's a, it's a lifelong thing. When you play in the NFL, everybody always asks you, like, how, how do you make it out? Nobody comes out unscathed. Nobody does. We talk about it all the time. I mean, if you play, I did nine years. I think if you play five, six-plus years, and sometimes it only takes two years, you're, you're going to be dealing with some stuff, and it's a sacrifice that we all make. Obviously, we get compensated for it very well, but, um, you know, you look back on it, and you got to take the good with the bad.
0: Yeah, you know, you, you mentioned the two Super Bowls, but, Keely, and I think you'll agree with me, The best giant team I've ever been around was that 2008 team. I mean, you guys were dominant, and we all know what happened at the end. You don't have to get into that if you don't want to. But, you know, I think what the team achieved in 2007 and, and the way they played in the playoffs, I think that's what you guys were for the whole year in 2008, right? You ran the ball down people's throats. The defense was dominant. What was it like playing on a team that really could just control both sides of the line of scrimmage the way you guys could consistently?
1: It was just fun. And that part of that success has to be attributed to Coach Kaufman because he could always find a way to make the sky fall down on Monday <laughs> when we came out after a win. So every week we were still in that same mode, that same anxious mode of wanting to succeed, wanting to succeed. But when you walked out there on the field and you saw how big the eyes were across, the, across that 50 yard line, I mean, we just knew we were gonna dominate teams. I knew as soon as Brandon Jacobs got that ball, it was a wrap. I knew we were going to go out there as a D-line and get some sacks and, and play and win. Obviously, it didn't finish up the way that we wanted it to. We had some tragic issues, but, you know, we'll leave that in the past. But it was – it was, um, that was probably the most fun I've had playing football.
0: Yeah, I mean, the I, I, most fun I've had watching it being around the Giants. It was just a, a great year. And – you know, when something like that comes together, what does it feel like in the meeting rooms, in the locker room, on the field? Is there just a different feeling that that's almost impossible to quantify?
1: You couldn't tell us nothing. There was there was nothing to be said. Newspaper articles, it, did, it didn't matter what was said, who was doubting us, because it just didn't. It went in one ear and out the other. There was absolutely um, no time to, to listen to the haters or, or anything like that we just we knew that we had a job to do we knew that we were going to win and we as long as we executed we had a lot of great coaches on that staff too a lot of those coaches are still doing very well for themselves right now you got to remember that Coughlin coaching tree is is a beast right now so Um, gotta give them credit too, but we just we just enjoyed every minute of it. There was a reason to celebrate. We were laughing, we were joking. Every day you walk in the meeting room and somebody gets up and tells a joke, or somebody we had battle raps in the D Line meeting room. Like it was just it was it was just a fun time. We worked our asses off. Don't get it twisted. We
0: worked our asses off, but we just had a fun time playing football. And that was your best year, right? You had eight sacks that year, 17 quarterback hits. Was that really when you felt like, all right, they're using me the way I need to be used. This is perfect. And everything's clicking for you personally, too. I
1: was hungry. I wanted to get us back there. I was like, listen, I missed the last one. Let's go. Let's go get another one. You know, I, I really believed in that team. And, you know, the, the, the process of getting there is what makes that team you know like that's what makes the memory for me, yeah, we didn't win the big one, but the process in which we went about things, training camp, coming in, laughing and joking during training camp, and then making it all the way through a week, what six seven, like you know, like without um any hiccups, like it was just it was just fun, you know it was it was fun to play ball, and yeah, I felt really good about where I was as a player at that time
0: all right, let's go to the Super Bowl in twenty eleven Kiwi and boy, you know, people lumped 2007 and 2011 together a lot. But to me, the seasons could not be any different in terms of how you guys won games. And I looked it up. You were the 27th ranked defense in the regular season that year. But the third ranked defense in the playoffs, what the heck changed that allowed you guys to turn it on like that when you got to the postseason where the defense really played so much better in those in those final set of games as opposed to earlier in the year?
1: I think we really had enough guys. And, and that's that's part of, um, I think, why they kept me around so long is we had enough guys left from that first Super Bowl team that could like, that could clearly state the message, listen, the season is over. Like, no matter what we did during the regular season, that is over. Somebody has to come in here or we have to go there. They have to beat us. We have an opportunity. And then we had guys coming in from other teams who would get up there and give speeches and say, you know, specifically a couple guys. Listen, guys, I've been playing in this league for seven, eight years. I've never been to the playoffs. You guys have won. Like, I, I want that. So some of the guys who were just coming in were hungry. They came to New York specifically to win a Super Bowl. And I think we just it just clicked. You know, we had a lot of young guys. I mean, uh, think about a, a Jaquan Williams. You want to talk about me playing out a position? Think about a linebacker covering deep from you know lining up damn near on the line of scrimmage and then running back covering deep balls there were there were so many contributing factors to it um but when you get to the playoffs, it's a fresh start. It's a fresh season. You got to get your mind right. And if you have veteran guys who have been in those tough situations before, they can put their arm around the young guys and just tell them, hey, shake it off. Shake it off. Let's go. Don't let the last play beat you on the next play. That's what I always used to
0: say. You know, we talked about 2008. How you guys just ran the ball down people's throats. Well, 2011, it was the Eli Manning show, right? What was it like watching him click with, you know, Victor, Hakeem, all those guys, Mario Manningham on offense, where it was just really an aerial show for a lot of that year.
1: Yeah, his his calm confidence, that smooth walk he had walking out there every week. You just you just by that time in like my career playing with him, you know, he's the only quarterback I ever played with. By that point, I just I knew something big was going to happen. I knew it was going to click. I knew at some point he was going to make some big plays in the game. And um, watching the entire offense as a whole. It was just it was impressive, you know, like whenever we needed it, it seemed like whenever something was uh, was missing, somebody came up clutch, somebody came up big. And a lot of that was the growth and maturation of Eli. He was able to to not just, you know, get the receivers, but he could get the offensive linemen in position and tell them it was it was, was kind of like watching him really come into his own. I mean, he had already won a Super Bowl, but that wasn't necessarily his team. You know, that was still Stray. This was his team. There was was nobody above him on that team at that time. So I think um, for him, that's a a great – maybe even better than the first one. That was a great victory for him.
0: What sticks out in your mind about the playoffs, a play, a game? You pick it. That really sticks out that kind of defined that run for you in the defense.
1: Uh, I think for me, uh, it was the – Falcons game. I can't remember who the um, the back was, but I was lined up, matched up with him one on one in the hole for almost the entire game. And I remember coming out of that game beat up, but for some reason that that was the game for me that just said, okay, you know what, I contributed to the win. You know, in this season, I, I was you know I was waiting because I was the I was the big linebacker at that time. So we needed you know only certain formations would bring me out on the field. So when I got that opportunity. And it, it, maybe it wasn't always sacks or this and that, but to be able to stuff somebody back in the hole consistently over and over and over again, it made me feel good.
0: How about the Super Bowl against the Patriots? You missed the first one, which obviously was, was the big one. You, you, you beat the undefeated team. But that second one, you get another shot at Tom Brady. We all know Tom Brady wanted a second shot at you guys. He just was joking the other day on a podcast. I don't understand why Giant fans hate me. They're the one team I can't beat. <laughs> So so what was it like getting ready for that game and and going up against a guy like Brady, who, you know, was dying to, to beat you guys in that game?
1: I honestly, I think at that point we had kind of adopted that mentality. Like he's just another guy. If he beats us, we, we did something wrong. We know how to get to him. We, we have the formula. We know what to do. Yes. He's going to make plays. There's no doubt about it. He's going to make plays, but at the end of the day, you know, they can only win if we let him beat us. So we took away the threats that he had and then we just tried to get to him, you know? And, and so I don't think at that point it wasn't, there really wasn't this whole mystique of, of Tom Brady. It was just, this is who we got to play. And this is what we got to do at that time.
0: What's the sense for a defensive lineman or a pass rusher when you know, you're hitting the quarterback, what are some of the things you see when you're like, all right, we're starting to get to this dude. We've seen this and this and this, and we know we're affecting him. What are some of the things that you'd notice that maybe, you know, us watching on TV or even watching a film camp, but you guys can see out there on the field.
1: The the first thing I think I noticed is the uncomfortable, like the, the lack of comfort or that offensive tackle that you're going against. You know, he's got he's got his eyes following you in and out of the huddle. He's trying to figure out if you're lining up against him. Maybe he's already jumped offside. So now he's he's nervous about, about what's gonna happen. But the one of the greatest feelings or the greatest moments is when you hit him with a move. So I would do the stab slap. You stab him, slap that arm, and they fall down. And it's just you and the quarterback. quarterback can't see you his back is turning you're just thinking if he pats that ball one more time (laughs) it is a wrap and so when you when you beat somebody clean like that because there's all types of sacks there's other sacks where it's just like you're just grinding 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 and somebody else flushes them to you and and you wrap them up those are great sacks don't get me wrong but when you've been working specifically all week to beat one guy and you've established what move you're going to beat him with you've set up every single move up to that point for that third down in that fourth quarter and you get that move, you get him to line up the way that you want him to, and you get that, that perfect move. And it's just you and the quarterback. Now it's just, it's just a foot race. That's probably the fastest 10 yards any defensive lineman can run.
0: Yeah. They always talk about the 10 yard split right on the 40 yard dash. (laughs) That's the 10 yard split on the 40 yard dash right there, man. But it's great. Great reminiscing. Talk about Kiwi kind of, you know, what you're doing now, uh, after retirement, how you keep me so busy. I know you could talk more about the smile train if you want anything else that you're up to and, and, and things of that nature. Yeah. So
1: the smile train right now is the, the thing that I'm most proud of. So since I retired, I started a company called wandering Wines. We, uh, import and distribute wine from all over the world. Right now we're just in Florida. Uh, we have, um, plans to open it up to do online sales and to go national here in the next couple of years. But we've just been steadily growing and growing our, um, our base down here in Florida. We have four brands, Wandering Wines is a parent brand. We have Peaks and Valleys, which you can find at Capitol Grill, uh, I think down here in Florida, Capitol Grills. Um, we have Keene, which houses a rosé. And a a sparkling. And then we have Lost Find. It's one that's hard to pronounce. Everybody calls it Lost and Find, but it's Lost Find. And that's more of the one that you'll find. Like if you go to a brewery down here in Florida, you can find it on a menu. Um, And that that has kept me extremely busy building a business on your own. I didn't do it by myself. I had a great business partner who was successful in his own right and showed me how to develop a business But building a business, I mean, everything, every little part of it, like there's there's no part of my business that I haven't done. I've put labels on bottles myself. I put cases of wine in my own truck and drove it. Like there are times people like, I just can't believe that a Super Bowl winner is delivering wine, you know? And this is right after I retired. Um, I had a dolly in the back of my truck, but that was, that's how we established our business. We wanted to make sure that we showed growth, you know, and you, you would say, we could pay somebody to come in here and do this, but it's not gonna reflect well on our balance sheet, and we're not gonna get the hands-on experience. So now when I bring people in to work for me, you, you're not gonna get anything past me. I know exactly how hard it is, I know exactly <laughs> it takes, I know exactly how many hours you spend on the road going from Key Largo to Jensen Beach. And then, you know, I finally got into a place now where you know people are coming to us and we sit around and we taste wine and we try it and we decide with the help of some small we have three small yas on the staff and we um and we pick wines to bring in so that's the fun part traveling around the world and um, drinking wine with friends I think like that that's what attracted me to it the most was just you know going back and forth to Napa and traveling to europe and and sitting there having these conversations with professionals people who are masters at their craft when you sit with a winemaker and you ask them you know what goes into making this wine it's one of those experiences where somebody can talk for 20 30 minutes straight and then they look up and they're like oh sorry and I'm like no no no, no don't apologize like that's that's where you learn that's where I've gotten the growth you know in the business. And I just I just enjoy that. And you never know who you're going to run into. You never know who you're going to meet. You know, some of the most interesting people are sitting in a, um, a cafe somewhere, having a nice glass of wine. And and I've always um, just been intrigued, like learning people's stories and, and whatnot. So that's kept me pretty busy. The two kids during COVID, seven and nine, trying to homeschool. <laughs>
0: God bless you, sir.
1: I don't know how teachers do it. I don't know. I don't. I honestly don't know. We, we had to hire a tutor to come in. I can't even lie because. At some point, you know, trying to work two different computer screens and this one's gotta start at nine. This one starts <laughs> at nine thirty. And where's your chalkboard? Where why aren't you dressing? I was just I was I was flushed. So I have a tremendous amount of respect for every working parent who, who did it themselves and for all the mothers and fathers who stay home by themselves with the children. That's a full-time job, but I do enjoy it. I love watching my kids grow. I've been blessed to have, you know, time to to spend with them. So, you know, we're just helping develop their skill sets and watching them grow and, and watching them discover things and seeing things through the eyes of a child. Again, it's just, it's been
0: amazing. How much you still keep track of the NFL and the giants?
1: Not at all. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I, um, so I watch. here's how I watch games, right? And people always ask me, do you still watch football? Yes, I watch football, especially now that my kids are, are of the age to understand the game. Sure. I watch football from a very technical aspect. So if you if you call me after a game and you want to say, hey, what did you see from this defensive end? I can break it down for you 100%. You know, I can tell you where his foot was supposed to be, why are his hands on his knees, why is he looking backwards when he should be looking forward, You know, all those different things. It's almost impossible for me to break my mindset out of watching football the way that I've been trained to watch. So, first thing my eyes go to is the receivers, the split in the backfield, where how deep is the quarterback. Then I want to see the stance from the offensive tackle or the interior lineman. Now I'm trying to figure out what defense are we in or what are we playing. And they've done a good job of, of mixing it up. And then, you know, I watch the defensive lineman, and I watch the, the outside linebackers. And then I try to put together the whole picture. I don't rewind nearly as much at all. <laughs> I um I would rather like you know come on post game and talk about the technical aspect of an individual player than talk about the politics of the sport and of the game and you know who's doing what or who's, I don't I, the off the field stuff for me that's that's over and done I like I enjoy You know, sitting with high school kids and teaching them, okay, listen, this is this is what you got to do. You can't drop your foot. You can't bucket step. You can't take a step backward if you're trying to go forward. And just those those little nuances of the game um, is what I pay attention to.
0: And really, that's the important stuff, which is probably – it's funny. I always thought, you know, Keith was such a a smart guy. I bet you he'd be good on TV, but now I know why you didn't go on the TV because all they do is ask you about that other stuff that really isn't all that important, right? And if you could sit there and break down film on TV, I think it'd be great. But unfortunately, that's not what – people like to do which 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 boggles my mind. to be quite honest with you
1: and I, and I always i always said you know like i played in the league i knew what my responsibility is nobody outside of that room knew what my responsibility is. when you're in a spagnolo defense What you look like you're supposed to do has nothing to do with what your actual responsibility is. So, you know, you get on, you get on, you go, you go home, you turn on ESPN and they want to spot shadow you and circle you and say, Oh, this guy was at No, he wasn't out of position. He was doing exactly what he was told to do. The play just broke down or didn't work. So I also shy away from criticizing players unless I have an intricate, detailed understanding of what he is supposed to be doing. So I think when you're the, um, guy who's in the locker room with the team every day week in week out you have a better understanding you just don't have as big of a platform you know to go out there and to create to critique people the people who are criticizing these players, oftentimes they're too far removed from the game to, to really give a good opinion, but it sounds good on TV. looks good. Sounds good. You know, it keeps people watching. So they'll keep doing it.
0: Yeah. I can't say how many times where I would, you know, see somebody do one of their film breakdowns on TV. And then I go and ask the actual assistant coach, is is this right? (laughs) And they're like, no, it's not even close. close. I remember there was a game where we came out of it and they were killing. I, I forget who it was. And I, I talked to the assistant coach. It might have even been Jaquan Williams. and like, well, he said Jaquan Williams played really bad. He goes, you know what? Let me tell you something. Jaquan Williams did exactly what we told him to do. And mm-hmm. for someone on the outside looking that didn't know his assignment, you know, yep. maybe they thought he played a bad game. We mm-hmm. grade him as an A because he did exactly what we told him to do for this particular team against this particular matchup.
1: He's, he's one of the guys that I point to the most when you talk about playing out of position I mean the guy played nickel, he played outside linebacker he played safety all in the same game and he would do it from a similar position so nobody knew where he was going to be if you if you ask the uh, offensive coordinator on the other side, they'd probably have a different story. they say that kid ruined all of our plays you know but he never got the credit for it because nobody really truly understood what exactly he was supposed to be doing you, you hit it right on the head.
0: All right, finally, I, I guess you I guess you got to be pretty excited about where the Giants are headed, right? I mean, they're only 6-10 and 10 last year, but a new coach in Joe Judge, which, by the way, when you come up here and you spend some time with him, he has mm-hmm. Coughlin vibes, dude, up and down, like no joke, like hardcore. You don't want to mess with this dude. Uh, mm-hmm. And it seems like things are really pointing up here, man.
1: I know, and I, I'm looking forward to it. I tell people all the time, just be patient, be patient. It is a very well-run organization, I think, that is one of the most important parts. Yes, there have been some tough years, but from top down, from Marys and Tish's all the way down, I do believe that, that um, the ship's going to be righted. And I've never lost faith in them. I just understand that, you know, the, the seasons ebb and flow. It's not always going to be, you know, um, great seasons, but I do believe we have a good shot this year
0: to remind everybody go to smiletrain.org. uh working on global health equity uh trying to do a lot of work with the cleft surgeries and, and cleft care out there in africa and of course in, in kiwi's ancestral home in uganda kiwi we appreciate the time man thank you so much we'll see you up thank here you. soon thanks a lot for the time
1: thank you